0: Whether you read every day or haven't finished a book in years, chances are there's at least one book you've kept with you for a long, long time. Something about the main character or the setting or maybe just the time in your life you discovered it. I want to know more about that. My name is Malavika Prasidh and this is your favorite book. Joining me today is Anvita Jain. Hi, Anvita. Hi.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: No problem at all. Um, so, for everyone listening, uh, Anvita, could you introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. So, hi everyone. I'm Anvita. Yeah. Um, I um, I'm an HR professional, a mental health advocate, and also an avid form, which is why I was super excited to come on this podcast. Um, and talk about one of my favorite books. Um, you know, honestly, I was like the stereotypical literally bookworm, you know, when my winter breaks consisted of going through stacks of books, and I think books have been very formative and kind of, you know, um, where I am today. Um, I'm also a huge writer, so words really speak to me. So I'm super excited to be here.
0: Well, first of all, I can tell you you and I have a lot in common. Books have meant <laughs> so much to me over the years. I'm also a big writer and I find writers make the best readers, and so it's a pleasure to have you on today. And so for everyone listening, the book we're talking about today is the very famous, the very well-known My Sister's Keeper by Jodi Pico. And um, I hadn't read this book before. Um, it had been on my radar for quite some time since, as I said, it's a pretty well-known book. Um, essentially, to give you a brief synopsis for anyone who might not be aware, uh, My Sister's Keeper features an average American family that is suddenly thrown into crisis when their 16 year old daughter is in need of a kidney transplant after a long history of leukemia. And ultimately her younger sister who was conceived via pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, um, conceived to be the perfect donor, suddenly refuses to be her donor after a long period and basically the aftermath of what happens to this family. And so before we jump into talking about uh, my thoughts on the book, the point of this podcast is always to talk to the guest first and figure out what exactly resonated about this book to you. So Anvita, first of all, when did you first read this book? Where, where were you in life at that time?
1: I was, so this book came out um, quite uh, before, you know, I read it. I found out about it when I was in early high school. So it was about 1415. Um, it was one of those, like you said, it's very well known. It was a, um, you know, young adult read that had been recommended to me by a lot of my friends, um, several by the time I read it. Um, and so I got my hands on it in high school. And um, I think What's notable is I began kind of exploring some more difficult kind of emotions and experiences by the time I read it. And as you uh, probably imagine from, you know, hearing about the plot, this book explores a lot of like difficult themes and stuff. So I'm glad that I, you know, touched it a little later rather than earlier Mm -hmm. to kind of fully get that out of the book.
0: Right. It's interesting that occurred to me too, this book, you know, primarily concerns itself with younger teenagers. And so it's tempting to want to recommend that book to younger teenagers. But I feel like a lot of the themes are really difficult to grasp unless you're in the right stage of life, the right frame of mind. And many teenagers may not really be in that place.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the characters in the book are teenagers, and they have to deal with that, right? Like it's their life. So when we think about that, can you even imagine, right, what the characters in the book are dealing with? Because they're dealing with these kind of things firsthand all of their life.
0: Absolutely, for sure. And so um, with this book particularly, um, have you read this book more than once? Have you read it a few times in your life?
1: I have, yeah. So I came back to it in college um, twice. And then I have read it once after college. Um, And I think it's interesting to read it several times because, like you said, like, there's so much there's so many layers to this book. Um, And I think as you mature, you dig in further.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I was going to lead into that is how does this book hit you differently now than it did either back in one of your previous readings or when it first when you first read it? Does it hit me differently?
1: Yeah, I think in my first read, I was very focused on trying to follow all the nuances of the plot because this book is actually told from like it switches between different points of view within each chapter Mm -hmm. so even just trying to keep track of those and then those details and switch between takes up a lot of your bandwidth when you're first reading the book um and so I think for me the second third even fourth time that I read the book I've had a chance to dig more into the emotions that it explores and the depth of those emotions and I think I think at first it was harder for me to relate to um, some of the, uh, I guess, characters that you might not really relate to at first. Like, for example, the mom, Sarah, right? Hmm. She, you know, to dig in a little deeper there, she is a very folk, like her primary motivator is saving her daughter, Kate, who's the one who suffers from leukemia. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes this comes at the expense of not focusing on her other two children at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a character that I found it more difficult to relate to, right? In my first read, I didn't really she I didn't really connect with her. You know, I was kind of just like yeah. I just saw her as a selfish mom. Like I I understood it, but I didn't I, I didn't really connect to the emotions that she was going through and what was motivating her. And it found I found it hard to like her. But I found that in my as I went through my reads, I connected with her more and more during every read because I could connect with the emotion. So this book touches on the theme of like control Mm -hmm. and event like I I actually relate when I really think about it I'm almost exactly like Sarah when it comes to like wanting control in my life and um, the ways in which I've exerted control earlier in my life kind of how, how she does. So for yeah. me, that theme resonated a lot more as I with every read, um, and I I feel like you know as I matured, I had more capacity to dig into those emo- like more difficult emotions and not really see it so much black and white and like become less judgmental of the characters and more mm-hmm. curious about their motivations and why they are the mm-hmm. way they are and that kind of thing.
0: Absolutely, and I I wanted to touch on that that theme of control. So we're gonna get into talking a little bit about the characters in a little more detail but it's interesting you noted the desire for control with Sarah you also see that with a lot of the other characters mainly um Anna our 13 year old donor sibling fighting for control of her own life it's the very fulcrum of the plot what it means to have control over your own medical decisions your own body um what that desire for control can mean and we see that same theme with Kate, the sibling with leukemia as well, where she feels her body falling apart, not really having control over what her body can do and what she's able to do. And so I think that theme manifests so differently in all these different characters.
1: Yeah, no, I like, I like that you bring up that it manifests differently in different characters, right? So different uh, basically the central point is that they have to deal with this thing that they can't, they don't know what's going to happen. Right. The mm-hmm. possibility of either losing their daughter or their sibling, or in Kate's case, her own life. Like there's yep. no, it's a day to day uncertainty that they have to deal with. Now where the variation comes is how they try to exert that control. Right. So for example, I like to talk about, you know, it's, we can talk about Sarah. I think Sarah's, you know, obvious um the manifestation of sarah's need to control is that she hyper focuses on mm-hmm. saving kate's life at whatever expense and she's um, um wary to like neglecting her other children and even right. her husband you know at one point i think there's a quote in the book that says like they're sitting across from each other and they feel like strangers because their marriage is strained right due to um all the focus that sarah has given to kate um and that is kind of you know that that's Sarah's way of exerting control she's like if I try to anticipate everything then I can prevent Kate from dying Uh, um that's kind of her logic there um Anna you know Anna is also another interesting one because there's a lot of she's really conflicted as a even when she sues their her parents for medical emancipation it's not like a decision she's she's solid on She Mm -hmm. is very... She teeters through the whole book. You know, the author constantly talks about this. And she... I think she's trying to... She's trying to figure out what control means to her. On one hand, the obvious form of control she wants is control over her body. But that also means that she loses, I guess, for lack of a better term, the control over losing her sister. And that's where she feels conflicted. She's like, I get one or the other. I can't control everything. Um, And then jesse is very interesting too because he acts out you know there's this one of the i guess some symb- symbols in this book is fire mm-hmm. and i think jesse's way of I, almost exerting control is like he he so he um he burns uh abandoned buildings you know yep. a, like some delinquent behavior and yep. that's like the what he's because he's trying to get his parents attention right? That's his way of exerting control. It's like, okay, what's the one thing that I can try to do? And even then he doesn't get it, right? So everything, everything, and if you dig a little deeper, he, it's not even that, that's like a surface level kind of assessment of why he's doing it. He actually just, he can't, he wants to save, like he, so basically he wasn't a donor match, right? The reason Anna's, Anna's genetically engineered is because they actually test Jesse first because he's a, he was already born. He was the older sibling. He's not a match. So he's been carrying that guilt for his entire yeah. life that he can't save his sister.
0: Absolutely. And I find the, the fire connection, I was going to bring that up later, but we're on it right now. What especially contrasts Jesse, you know, being an arsonist essentially, which we don't get until partway through the book, is their father, Mr. Fitzgerald Bryan, is a firefighter. He's a yeah. firefighter by trade. He's the primary breadwinner of the family and he loves his job. He's very devoted to his job. We frequently see him saving people from burning buildings, just really understanding the job he does and caring very deeply about it. And we have, you know, an arsonist. It's this sort of cruel irony that we're given and it does provide a nice contrast to the main plot of the story. And I think this actually transitions to uh, what I wanted to talk about here. So sort of how I've organized some of this is um, this was my first time reading this book and I sort of looked at it in terms of things I liked about the book and things I didn't like about the book. And so to start with the positives, I think one of the things Pico did very well in this book is overall character believability. And so Mm -hmm. to just give you our cast of characters, if you got a little lost in our discourse, we have the Fitzgerald family. Mom, Sarah, dad, Brian, and three children. Jesse, an older brother. He's about 18. Kate, our 16-year-old sister, who has had leukemia for the majority of her life. And then Anna, the youngest sibling, 13 years old, conceived to be a perfect match donor for Kate. Purposefully conceived that way. They have an interesting family dynamic. And their pain is palpable. We get a view in towards all of these characters I found the most believable interactions and the most believable insights into human pain being the flashbacks in Sarah's perspective, talking about all the ups and downs in Kate's medical care. And it's easy looking at Sarah from other perspectives to see her selfishness. As you mentioned, your first reading through, you do pick up on that selfishness, putting one daughter above the others, but you see what she goes through and you feel for her. It's very well emotionally told and I think Pico is just really good at rendering these characters towards us and making us feel their pain making us empathize with them
1: there's this tendency to sometimes shy away from darker emotions or to make characters black and white like evil bad or good in terms of emotions too and she doesn't do that she all the characters are nuanced um and all of their emotions are fully explored Mm -hmm. And that's what I really love. I think that for me, that was my favorite part of this book was the um, emotional maturity of it. Um, And she makes, like you said, she makes it come to life in very interesting ways. Even Sarah, even in my first read, I didn't hate her at Mm -hmm. all. You know, I understood her pain. I was like, I get where it's coming from. Even if I don't agree with it, I can sympathize with it. Or I can, I wouldn't say empathize because I've quite not had quite the experience to do that. But definitely Mm -hmm. sympathize with what um, she goes through
0: right absolutely and so I think that part the emotional rendering of the characters definitely worked in many ways for me Uh, I want you to keep that point of emotional maturity in mind because I want to come back to that Um, the other thing I really liked about this book is the overall placement of emotional moments the overall pacing especially of the main plot we're going to get to this there's a couple of subplots here I thought the pacing of the main plot was very well done. We have some pivotal courtroom scenes. We have some emotional conflict scenes. And I thought all of those came at the right time. And if you're unaware of this book or don't know a lot of the facts of the plot going into it, I think it'll be very engaging, very suspenseful. I think Picot understands her plot movement pretty well to bring that to life.
1: Agreed. Yeah, no, I think, I think what's interesting is that she uses different people's perspective, right? She doesn't just take one perspective and carry that through the book. Um, mm-hmm. I think That allows her to pace the plot really well. And it's not all like one thing, right? So like, for example, the court time isn't just one chapter or like, um, there's, you know, the past isn't just the past and then we are moved into the present. They're like, the past is sprinkled in throughout the narrative of the present where it's relevant sort of and I think that's I think again she prioritizes the character and the emotional movement over chronological movement and I think that's what makes this book what it is.
0: Yeah that's a good point because we're often taken to and from in time decades you know sort of thrown back and forth through time which can feel a little disorienting but you realize what you're following is an emotional plot rather than a chronological one. So I think that's a great way to put it.
1: I don't know if we're moving to talk about what didn't work so well, but I think sometimes you get too disoriented Mm -hmm. um, between all the uh, switches between the points of view because it switches really fast within each chapter. Mm -hmm. and I almost think it switches too fast. But then part of me wonders, it's like, again, if we're looking at it from the point of view of following the emotional plot, the situation these characters going through is very disorienting right right? it switches from day to day so maybe maybe that was Pickle's way of bringing that to life you know i I often and i reflected on that during multiple readings because i think sometimes i was like whoa like that like it resonated with me i think in my later readings but in my earlier readings like even in my first reading i spent so much time trying to keep track of the plot Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: Those details are very important, the nuances and following those nuances and catching it because, um, and we might touch on this later, but like this, you know, this book is very rich in kind of issues that it talks about and content and maturity of content. So part of like being able to follow it chronologically is also important to understanding some of those emotions. So I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to look at.
0: Yep. And um, I think this serves as a good time for me to jump into some of the things as a new reader who hadn't read this book, some of the things I didn't like about this book or weren't really working for me. So I want to preface this overall by saying, after reading the book and having some time to think about it, I would say overall, I don't think this book worked for me. And I'm going to explain why. Um, I can see why a lot of people really like this book but I think I was able to boil it down to about three things that um, I think is why this book didn't really work for me. And I'm gonna present them and I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Definitely not meant to (laughs) insult the book in any way, but whether or not you agree, disagree, we'll see where we go from here. (laughs) Sounds good. I am very curious. Yep. So, okay. So I said three points and this first one I think might be a little bit of a pet peeve. So when I don't do podcasts and when I'm not reading books, my day job, I'm a genetic counselor by trade. My job essentially is I counsel patients about their genetic risk. I work in the fields of cancer and I work in the fields of uh, prenatal (laughs) genetics. So these concepts were not new to me. So pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, it's a procedure that I'm not a stranger to. It's an established procedure often used when, There's a known genetic disorder in the family. Uh, Families, if they know about this ahead of time, have a few options in terms of planning a future family. And some choose to undergo IVF and select embryos that don't have a trait that they want to include or have desired traits in some cases. And there's still plenty of controversy to this day about PGD. And the overall concept um, that's demonstrated in this book is the concept of a savior sibling. And it's not an unheard of concept. It's definitely been um, in practice before in isolated cases. Um, This extent sort of amps it up to 11 a little bit, the idea of continuous donation. Usually you see the savior sibling concept as a one-time donation, maybe of cord blood or stem cells one time. We don't see. In this book, we see a few different instances of donation throughout Anna's lifetime, giving cells from Anna to Kate. And so... I found it really interesting, some of the science here. I don't think Pico made this all up, but I did have a few quibbles about the science. Primarily that PGD was pretty new in the nineties. We're given timestamps as to when this occurs. Mm -hmm. PGD was done in the nineties, but we're shown that Anna was born in like 1991. And they mentioned them going to a geneticist for maybe half a page. They mention it coming up in a television interview, but we don't see any of the ethics uh, conversations going on. We don't see any of the struggles they had from a genetic standpoint. And we realize that um, Kate is diagnosed when she's two. Anna's born when she's three. This would have been a very fast process. So I'm thinking about it from that perspective. And also, PGD is extremely expensive, even today. And we're shown in other chapters that um, the Fitzgerald family is a middle-class family. They have one income, dad is a firefighter. We're shown that they struggle with insurance coverage for other treatments and need to fundraise and do other things, but we've never really given the prices involved with PGD, um, so in general, I attribute this to a lot of my own professional experience coming into reading this book. I just wanted more explanation and more exploration of this topic to really buy in, so to speak. Um, as it stands, you see a lot of the fears, of, quote unquote," designer baby. I have comments all the time in my line of work. It's simplistic. And I know this book does really try to chip away at that narrative but I almost wanted a little bit more because in many ways this looks like a cautionary tale but I think I just wanted more nuance when it came to the science of it
1: no I think I think you bring up a really good point you know and I started touching on like um this in a different way and this is one of the things that you know didn't work for me in this book either was that the emotional plot overwhelms a lot of other elements you know, mm-hmm. and you know, as a 14-year-old, I was definitely not looking for the science, like what you were coming into, <laughs> right? Very different context. Right. But, um, I think, and I think for me, like I said, the reads after that were more nostalgic yeah. Than anything else. And I think I read it for the emotion, right? So coming mm-hmm. in, I think it's good to provide what kind of, I guess, context I was experiencing as a 14-year-old coming into this book to yeah. really kind of... Um, bolster my kind of point of view here um I have always been a very emotional kid I was just very in tune with my emotions and I was I had big emotions and that's something growing up that I struggled to own because Mm. you're not taught that at school like there's no there's no there's very little context around the value of emotions and emotional intelligence in general Um, a lot of the focus and you know coupled with the fact that I grew up in a South Asian family hmm don't talk about emotions like it's just not talked about and so I always saw it and I guess in society I feel like again with especially being a woman like you're often told emotions are a sign of weakness like like not Mm -hmm. in those words right but in like so many subtle ways when you grow up and that message is so reinforced that I had a lot of trouble with that kind of aspect of my personality and owning that and just coming to terms with that and I so for me I think going in with that lens of like that desire to just explore emotions more. You know, mm-hmm. I saw books. Books are kind of like my playground to do that. So this Absolutely. book was perfect for that. That kind of thing. And it Absolutely. like I said, I think I always had a very intuitive understanding of like all emotions are valuable, not just the positive ones. Yeah. A lot sooner than people around me. So I think for me, like this book did that in a very, like, like I said, very good way. So a lot of those other kind of elements that you saw, right, that are missing some of that legal context, ethical context, I wasn't yeah. even looking at that. I did, I probably wouldn't even notice that until what, some of my later reads. That oh, being God. said, I do agree with you that that's not explained enough. Um, I also come from a STEM background. I, I used to be a biomedical engineering major um, in undergrad. <laughs> so I see, so my later reads, I was like, yeah, like, what is... There's so much meat to explore, right? I don't even, yeah. I didn't even look at like the chronological portion of it where, you know, Anna was born in 1991, you know, when did the procedure, like that I had no clue about until you just mentioned it. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. But even just like, not really exploring like the, like what kind of advice the geneticists give, right? And yeah. I'm sure you have like a lot greater knowledge since that is your, <laughs> but um, I think if I don't, I, I almost question whether this the purpose of this book was to serve as a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. I yeah. almost wonder because given that I've actually I read a lot of Pickle's other books in, um, in high school and actually a lot of them did didn't stand out to me because they were not as substantive. Yeah. And I almost wonder if she just kind of took the ethical dilemmas as a oh I can use this to talk about strong emotions and mm-hmm. nuanced emotions and. Like you said, she didn't really take the time to fully research because that's the impression that I get, right? From my later yeah. readings also. Is I wonder if she even understands the complexity of the ethical dilemmas that she kind of just brushes on.
0: Right. And it's interesting you mentioned Pico's, uh, Pico's other work. Um, so I know Pico has written, you know, dozens of books. I looked this up. She's written 26 novels, which is immense. As someone who's struggling to write novel number one right now, the concept of 26 books is unfathomable. Yeah. But if you ask me to name Pico books by name, I can name this one and I can name one of her other books, which is 19 Minutes. Yes. Um, that was
1: the other one I was going to name too is the right. that's the other one that's known. Yeah.
0: And that's the other one that touches on social issues. So I hadn't read that book, but I'm familiar with the plot movement. That one essentially is about school shooting and getting in the mind of a school shooter, essentially. And I know that book did receive, you know, some mixed reviews from psychologists wondering how this portrayal sheds light on a school shooter. So not to take away from Pico's research, I'm sure she did plenty, but I think it's clear from these two books and probably her other work, I haven't read them myself, but her forte is emotional moments, maybe not telling true to life, psychological or scientific facts, which I don't hold against her.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that assessment 100%. And I think, like I mentioned, I think that's why her other books didn't resonate with me. I was not a huge fan of 19 Minutes because I think, again, that's psychological. And I read it a little later. I think I read it when I was like, 18, mm-hmm. by which I time I'd taken a psychology class as well. <laughs> so I feel like that, again, with the, more of that context and more, you know, kind of concerned with like, you know, true to life kind of storytelling that book didn't resonate with me in that aspect. Um, so yeah, I think it's, My Sister's Keeper is the only book that resonated with me simply for, you know, the fact that I, the, the explanation that I just gave regarding kind of the emotional place that I was in when I read Absolutely, and that
0: makes a lot of sense. I think in terms of an emotional work, this book definitely delivers. And um, to get on the flip side of that, so we talked a little bit about how the science didn't jive with me. The second point of why the book didn't really work for me This has to do with more of the construction of the book itself. And Mm. I think it pertains to the subplots. Um, So we've Mm -hmm. talked in detail about the main plot, which is Anna potentially denying her sister a donor kidney after being a donor for so long. We have talked a little bit about the subplot of Jesse, the older brother um, crying out for attention by committing arson, but we haven't talked about at all. The third plot in this book, which (laughs) concerns, um, Anna's lawyer, Campbell, and her guardian atletum, Julia, and their sort of romance history they've got. That just did not work for me at all here. I yeah. it
1: was it, it was, I, I, was not fully explored, for one, right? It was
0: not fully explored. And it almost made me wonder, actually, I scratched that. It did make me think this subplot could have been cut from the book. Oh, I, 100% hundred percent I think what it showed me so essentially this subplot Campbell is um Julia's lawyer is not Julia's lawyer apologies is Anna's lawyer Julia is assigned to the case as a guardian sort of to determine whether Anna can remain in her parents house as she's suing them a very difficult position to be and it's sort of shown that Campbell and Julia it's a small state Rhode Island They have a romantic history dating back to high school. And it delves into that, into this new relationship they're forming as colleagues. And this is when I wanted to come back to that point of emotional maturity that you brought up. Mm -hmm. Because we go from children that are dealing with a very emotional situation and demonstrating a great deal of maturity to these 30-something-year-old people demonstrating a total lack of emotional maturity.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting that you bring that up, right? Because the the main plot is so emotionally charged that sometimes you forget about these subplots and Mm -hmm. whether they really match. Um, And I I think I personally just ignored that plot in my head, which (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Like, I was so busy trying to keep up with the main plot that, like, that subplot got lost on me. I didn't think it served any purpose, right? I think at least the other subplots, like, for example, Jesse's, it Mm -hmm. still adds to the main story. I think it still explains and it still relates and it's easy to make that connection. But it's like, why do Campbell and Julia have to have a romance? It's like trying to throw too much in there. I'm like, is she just trying to throw more, like, because emotional moments are her forte, is she just trying to throw more in there to kind of, that's what I questioned.
0: Yeah. And if anything, I felt it was taking away from a very emotional story. And I feel like this book would have been better if she had kept it entirely within the family, you know, explore Jesse's struggles a little bit more because I felt his subplot got the least- page time I was tempted to say screen time it's a book but the least page time and we really could have gotten more development there we could have gotten more explorations into the science and medicine we could have gotten a little bit more of the Fitzgerald family really the reason we come to this story and a little less of these two dwelling on a relationship that failed in high school it really felt like it came from another book and it was sort of sewn
1: in there I don't know I think it almost like took away from some of the legal and ethical stuff she could have explored too because with Campbell like he's the lawyer like that could have been easy plug-in for some of that Mm -hmm. legal context and everything and talking about even the court scenes are kind of short like for my case, like I was like there's just I, I like more nuances of the case like what is some of that specific dialogue that happens back and forth um I think it's not focused enough on that. And like you said, they actually, Julia and Campbell's like plot line takes a, a lot of page time.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. It felt like Campbell at times, especially the chapters in his voice, he kind of felt like a lawyer stereotype <laughs> in a lot of ways. And then Julia, I didn't think she needed to be in the book at all. Like in the end, she had her interactions with the family, but I felt that other characters were sort of getting to the heart of that and the just basically the amount of attention that was paid to these two characters and especially to their past lives I just wasn't interested
1: yeah no me neither like I said I forgot about it
0: (laughs) it's glad we're on the the same page with that one I don't know how many readers are like oh no I love Campbell and Julia I don't think anyone comes to this book for them
1: I mean Campbell was a difficult character for me to like even more so than Sarah right because Sarah (laughs) was like I could at least be like, oh, she's like a mom. You know, she's a mom who cares about Kate. Like, that. that is not difficult to like, even as selfish as she comes off sometimes. You know, you can relate to a mom, like a caring mom. But like, with Campbell, like you said, there's like that lawyer stereotype. I mean, there's so much this is like a very hard case. Like A 13-year-old girl is coming to you suing about medical emancipation, and she's it's not like I said. It's not like Anna's just cold. Like she's just like this is what I want. Like mm-hmm. she's teeters so much, and there's so much. Like I wish Campbell, you know, as much emotional depth as the other characters have. What about Campbell? Like he could have. Yeah. He would have been a human, right? It was just like, oh, he's just a flat lawyer. Like he's just there because Anna needs someone to like fight her Kate. Like she needs a lawyer, but if there's no like, what about his story? What I mean, they do, and that's the unfortunate part is he she does kind of start to set up a story for him too
0: his own medical issues
1: yeah yeah with his dog judge and but what else like why how how is it that he doesn't have it's almost like a, it's very disappointing <laughs> when you yeah. really think about it it's like there's so much set up there and it's just not explored but again I think like I said I don't think she used her page time wisely I almost one like too many things were thrown in there
0: Right, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the the way to think about it is page time. Like, how are you using your page time? And this is a pretty big book. Like, this is a over four hundred page book. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty easy read in terms of readability. It reads quickly once you get involved in it. But it's still a large book. I feel like if you cut out the Campbell jewel plot line, you'd still have plenty of book left over. It's not like she wouldn't be able to publish this. There's so much book left. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think it was one of her earlier books. Yeah.
0: But I think that's so. also good to note. Right.
1: And um,
0: so this comes to the, the third point here. And um, this is something I want to talk to you about specifically because you've mentioned rereading this book. So mm-hmm. I came into this book not having read it before, but I knew how it ended. Um, because I feel like this book's just been in the public consciousness for so long that it, so for those of you that may or may not know, I'm not going to spoil it, but this book has a famous, suspenseful, unexpected ending. And um, I felt that knowing how this book ended prevented me from really getting into it on a first read. And I, there are some books that I reread often, but I wonder with a book that has sort of this suspenseful ending, How is this book to reread? Do you find yourself rereading for different elements of the book, sort of, you know, putting plot aside and looking for other things? Or is it just a holistic read? I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying here, if that all makes sense.
1: I think so. I think it's interesting that you bring up, you know, you went into the book knowing the ending, which doesn't surprise. Like you said, it's been in the public consciousness for like, God knows how long, right? For me, like I said, my rereads were purely nostalgic, purely nostalgic. There was no, I didn't really go into my rereads with intention, you know, beyond just like, this is one of my favorite childhood reads. Like, let me just read it again. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't looking for, and I think I like to go into books with no intention, actually, because I find that I get more out of it that way. So I think partially for me, it was just diving into those emotional layers, like let me just seeing if there's differences in the ways I related to the characters, Mm -hmm. Um, were there things I noticed about those layers that I didn't notice before, even just some of the other plot line right now that I have that kind of that sequence in place from my first read, is there stuff that I noticed that I didn't notice before. So it's really just um, it didn't really take away from that knowing the ending. Um, I I wasn't looking for suspense right. I think when you look when you go through a first read You want the plot, like you want something that's going to keep you hooked and that you don't know about. But after that, if you're rereading a book, you're not, you're not looking for that because you've already read the book once. Right. Uh, And so for me, like that, knowing that ending didn't impact, you know, that, like the frame of mind that I was going into it with. Um, That being said, I think it's unfortunate that you didn't know the ending because I do think (laughs) it adds a layer of suspense to it. Yeah. And like, whoa, okay, that came out of like it, at least for me, it did come out of left field. Right and I appreciate and I think the ending really hones in on that theme of control like it really it brings it home and that that theme specifically for me uh really is like the focal point in terms of emotions it's yeah. that theme of control just because of some of the mental health stuff I also deal with and I think I, you know like I said, like actually Sarah in terms of, how control manifests for each character. Sarah is actually the one I relate to the closest. Mm -hmm. And I think part of me, my later read, like my post-college read was specifically for that purpose. Um, Because, and that was what stood out to me. And uh, so that ending actually, like for me, it really knowing that ending actually led me to notice specific things about the things in Sarah's point of view. Like you said, some of the most kind of moments that bring that pain to life are the um, Parts where Sarah tells you about the past, yeah, and so I think that was that was what spoke for me, and so um, that ending, knowing that ending, actually added to that perspective. And I would say, like, my most recent read. So that's I don't know if that's like a long-winded answer, but I don't know. No, that's that's, that's
0: very clear. And I honestly, I was thinking back to books I've read in the past that are more suspenseful. I tend to breeze through them. You, you wanna know how they end and you don't get to notice some of those finer details. And so I think actually a suspenseful suspenseful book might actually be a more satisfying reread just because you get to focus on some of those quieter moments. That, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I wanted to ask you at this point. Uh, so I have not seen the movie. So I know there's a very famous movie. Uh, on my sister's keeper, and I know one of the main things about this movie is that they changed the ending. And so I don't know how, if you've seen the movie, how you feel about it. I wanted to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I mean, without without giving it away, right? Um, mm-hmm. I did not like the movie at all because I was very <laughs> attached to the book. Yeah, and it's it's such a hard book to do justice to, with, with, with a movie, I almost wish they hadn't made a movie. Um, right or not? Almost. I do wish they hadn't made a movie. <laughs> um, it it I wouldn't say ruined it for me because like I'm kind of glad the the movie was different because in my head it's like a different entity. Yeah. but the book, I feel like if they stuck to it, it would have made me sadder because <laughs> it would have been like oh. But um, the movie didn't really. It was just it didn't do it justice. There's so many. Like I said, the strength of this book is the emotions and the movie didn't get to that you know I don't know if it was the acting or the directing or a combination of both right but for me the movie didn't even come close to the book like it just or you know part of it I will acknowledge my bias like I said I'm very attached to this book um, for mm-hmm. many reasons and so for me I might have even gotten to the movie like what is this gonna do right like I already have <laughs> my book and I already have the original and I tend to be someone who like By default, I think some part of me assumes that the book is going to be better than any movie version, because I I always see the book as the original material, like that is the concept, that's where it came from. So I think I was already strongly biased that way. And then again, being attached to a book, and watching a movie, you know, you don't, you go in with very high expectations. um, And this movie just didn't meet that at all. Yeah.
0: For sure. And for anyone at home who happened to listen to our first episode, uh, my guest from my first episode said very similar things when I asked her about the film adaptation of her favorite book. Um, She also felt that, you know, you hold a book so closely to your heart that the film sort of chips away from impressions you might have had of the characters. Um, In that case, with that particular story, they tried to make a very, very faithful adaptation. So I think, as you said, this is more of a separate entity. So you can still hold the book kind of close to your heart. And this seems kind of separate and more removed in a way that's a little better.
1: I really like that point of like holding it dear to your heart. Cause you're just, mm-hmm. I think that just sums it up. Why sometimes you just don't like the movie, even if it's a really good movie on its own. Yeah. I, I can't really even offer an unbiased assessment of the movie. That being said, I think sometimes I know some people are not readers and they just gravitate towards the movie. So Mm -hmm. I will say for those people, the movie is different than the book, you know, like, yeah, it's not a substitute.
0: Right. For sure. And so to sort of wrap up what we're talking about today, I wanted to add in, um, we didn't have this segment in the first episode, but I'm thinking about adding this into future episodes and, It comes down to if you've read this book or if you're interested in this book, definitely check out the book itself. But I also wanted to offer a couple of other books that I've read that I think have some similarities in terms of content or themes that I can recommend and that you might like if you're interested in this book, both for you, Anvita, as well as any listeners. And so the first book I wanted to mention is a book called Inside the O'Briens, And this is by uh, Lisa Genova. And so Lisa Genova, she's most well known for a book called Still Alice, which was later made into a movie starring Julianne Moore. It's about a woman going through Alzheimer's at a young age. And Inside the O'Briens also follows sort of a medical odyssey. In this book, it is a family that finds out that its patriarch has been diagnosed with Huntington's disease, which is a degenerative neurological condition Um, Doesn't manifest until later on in life. But if you carry the specific genetic mutation involved, you definitely develop symptoms. And so it's something people can find out about ahead of time or choose not to find out with and are later surprised. And I think this book does a really good job at sort of tapping into those themes of a family under duress, dealing with difficult medical decisions. There's a lot of interesting nuances. If you're familiar with Huntington's disease at all, I'm not going to say it's a completely accurate picture. I'm sure families who have experienced the condition themselves may have other thoughts, but um, I do think the book is pretty well thought out. It's an engaging story and does touch on some similar themes. And so that's the first one I wanted to offer as a recommendation. So Inside the O'Briens by Lisa Genova. Um, The other book, it sort of takes a different turn. So this is a nonfiction book that I read during my grad school training. And this is a book called One in a Billion, the story of Nick Volker and the Dawn of Genomic Medicine. And so this book is really interesting. It talks about two different things. It talks about the scientific race to apply human genome material to the first ever clinical case that needs it. So the genome's already been sequenced. We're past that point. But now we need to find a way to take that information and find an answer for a patient that is suffering. And that's like a whole different ballgame. That's a completely different set of scientists, um, medical ethicists, um, all different people involved here. And so it takes part of the story talking about the scientific odyssey that part can sometimes be a little dry and biology-y but another interesting part and the reason why it really ties to my sister's keeper that if you think Sarah is on a mission to cure her child you have to meet Nick Volker's mom um Nick Volker is a very young child he's about three or four years old And he's been diagnosed with a disease that nobody can really explain. No one's seen this disease before. And he is in and out of hospitals, losing all sorts of milestones, very similar to Kate in this book. And his mother will stop at nothing to find an answer. She is sort of the central focus of this. She's hard to like at times, but she also, you know, neglects a couple of her older children because Nick takes up all of her mental and emotional energy she's sort of a real life picture of what this can look like to have a child with such a difficult condition. Um, But I think it really puts that idea of stopping at nothing to save your child, even changing the whole course of medicine itself, if it means your child makes it through. And so that's a book, I think, if you like some of the themes in this book, you might really enjoy that one as well. So that one's called One in a Billion. Um,
1: It's by Mark Johnson and Kathleen Gallagher. Awesome! Thanks for the, so, those recommendations. I uh, this is very interesting about Nick Volker's mom. I very uh, does that book explore more of the psychological aspect, or is it more very like scientific? Especially since it's like nonfiction. It's nonfiction.
0: It does a little of both. There are a lot of interviews that they draw upon. You also have to wonder. You have to take into account the point of view of the writers and the journalists. Mm-hmm. You always wonder reading this, and the psychol the psychological point is that. This is not told in the mom's own voice, this is interviewing her. So it often got me thinking, how would mom rewrite this story? And so in that sense, it gets you thinking a little bit. Um, It's less psychologically focused and emotionally in tune than I would say inside the O'Brien's is that being a work of fiction and having more space to do that. Right. But I think it provides like a, an interesting scientific counterpart to what we see in My Sister's Keeper. Awesome. Interesting. All right. And so thank you all for listening. And of course, thank you, Anvita, for sharing your favorite book with me. I'm glad I got the experience of reading My Sister's Keeper. I had heard about it for so long and I'm glad I got the opportunity to read it and really form an opinion on it. And it was so wonderful chatting with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more or if you'd like to be on an episode of your favorite book, Find me at Vika Reads, V-I-K-A-R-E-A-D-S on Instagram and Twitter. I'd be happy to hear from you. And as always, don't judge a book by its cover, but do judge a book by its lover. See you next time.